about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. If you're visiting tonight or if you're new to church in the graveyard, welcome. We love having visitors here. It's a place where people are exploring what it means to follow Jesus and continuing to struggle to follow him in the day-to-day. Today we're talking about Jacob, this guy we've been hearing about. Let me pray for us as we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can know you uh, through the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you promise your Holy Spirit to all who trust in Jesus. We thank you that you are with us and for us. And we pray that as we read about Jacob and his life and his struggle with you, that we might... Uh, continue uh, to struggle with and for you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. You know that movie where the guy relives the day over and over and over again? If you haven't seen it, it's a classic. Ned Ryerson. Um, The main character in the movie relives the same day. He wakes up at six o'clock every morning and he relives the same day. What would you do if you knew that you were never going to die, what would you do tomorrow morning if you knew that whatever you did that day, you'd just reset and start again the next day? It starts as comedy, and then it's a bit sad. It's it's a moving film. No, it's trite and comedic. What would you do if you knew you were never going to die is a question that on one hand bears no interest to us because we know we are going to die. We are the church in the graveyard, yeah? The reason we do this is because each time you walk to church, you're reminded of the faithful saints, the people who trusted in Jesus before us, who have died and gone to be with Jesus. It sharpens our minds because we know we are going to die. And tonight we meet Jacob, a man who knows someone is out to get him. He's facing death, a certain death in his mind. And the question is, what do you do with that? Our plan is to look at Jacob's back story, what makes him who he is, to look at the struggle with God, and then to look at him limping into a new day. The back story, the wrestle, limping into the new day. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great to open it. We're going to start by looking at Jacob's back story, and he's born in Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, if you have one of these tastefully coloured brown Bibles, it's on page 24. i give you a minute to flick to it. Uh, as I was alluded to earlier in the service, we've got this four-week series as a kind of breath of fresh air before we head back into the book of 1 Corinthians in a few weeks' time, where we've looked at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and next week, Joseph. The four patriarchs, the great fathers of the Old Testament, but also a bunch of ratbag sinners who are not models for us in many respects. You know, there's a theory going around that just because it's in the Bible, it's mandated by God. That's rubbish. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's for us. It might be for us to learn from by not doing it. For instance, having many wives. Nightmare. But Uh, You've got time now. It always ends badly for people with many wives. It's chaos in the families. 
uh, Genesis chapter 25. Uh, this is the account, I'm reading from verse 19, of Abraham's son Isaac. Mr. Nobody, things happened to him. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, unable to have children, and the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies, note the plural, jostled within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to get a scan. No, no, because there wasn't good pre-maternity care. Uh, she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Just hands up oldest children in the room. Quick scan. Yeah, it's right that we are served, right? But yet, in many cases, God chooses otherwise. And in this case, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now, it's a story, it's a birth story, it's kind of neither here nor there in terms of interest until we do this. Now, your name means something. I'm not sure what it means. You might have a funny name that means something funny. Uh, in Cottage Church early today, there was a guy called Phil there, which means lover of horses. Random. Uh, my surname is Fitzharding, which means bastard son of the king. <laughs> kind of unfortunate. But you get what you get, right? Anything with fits, it's just a prefix. Okay, so let me read this passage again for Jacob and Esau, but we'll put in what they would have heard at the time. Are you ready? Verse 24. When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her room. The first to come out was Red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Red Man. And after this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Graspy. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Red Man became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Graspy was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved the Red Man, but Rebekah loved Graspy. Once, when Graspy was cooking some stew, Red Man came in from the open country. Famished, he said to... Ah! <laughs> he said to Graspy, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was called Red Man. Jacob replied... Ah, Graspy replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Red Man said. What good is the birthright to me? But Graspy said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Graspy. Then Graspy gave the red man some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. So the red man despised his birthright. It's a bit more colourful, right? Both literally and metaphorically. Uh, it gives you an insight into these brothers, these two nations, these two people. And as Jacob, the grasping one grows, he continues to exhibit 
who he is at heart, who he is by nature. In chapter 27, the same thing happens. Uh, Instead of a birthright, it's the blessing. When the father would, on his deathbed, bless his sons and say, all that I have is yours, and all the good things that God has promised me will come to you. Have a a flick over to chapter 27. I'll uh, summarise the first half of the chapter. Isaac's old and blind and kind of pathetic, and he says to the red man, go out into the field, kill some goats, make me the stew that I like, and then I'll bless you. Rebecca overhears and says, ha, Isaac, put on, says to, says to Graspy, go and put on your older brother's clothes and we'll trick the old blind fool who is my husband. Okay. Verse 19. Chapter 27 of Genesis. This is Jacob's backstory. She handed to her son Jacob the tasty food and bread she'd made. He went to his father and said, My father. Yes, my son. He answered, Who is it? That's the question. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is a rat bag. Come near so I can see whether you are my son. Verse 22, Jacob went close to his father Isaac who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognise him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? I am, he replied. And so he blesses him. I mean, it's, it's almost comedic, except that it's sad. There's the younger, smooth-skinned brother wearing goat skins and his brother's big clothing to pretend to be who he is not. And so Isaac blesses the younger son. And when Esau finds out, understandably, he's not that excited. Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, bless me too, father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And here's the kicker, verse 36. Isn't he rightly named Graspy? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Just to clarify... The grasping the heel thing, literally it means grasp, but it's, it's an idiom, a figure of speech for being a deceiver. It's a bit like ankle tapping someone in footy. Like it, it's the tricky way of bringing someone down. So Jacob is sometimes called the grasper and sometimes the deceiver, but it means the same thing. Esau is brutally sad. Imagine having your birthright and your inheritance taken away by your sneaky brother. Verse 41. This is the future of this family. Are you ready? Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, that is, my dad's going to die soon, then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's not a case of happy families. It's the fruit of Isaac and Rebekah playing favourites. It's the fruit of Jacob living up to his name, the deceiver, the grasper. 
taking by cunning that which is not rightfully his. The next few chapters of Genesis is the story of Jacob, despite being this crook, receiving the blessing of God. God appears to Jacob and says, the promises I made to your father Abraham, to your grandfather Abraham and to Isaac, are for you as well. I will bless the world through you. And as you read it, you think, seriously? Through this guy? But whatever Jacob does prospers, just like we'll hear next week with Joseph. Whatever he does turns to gold. His flocks expand. He's got lots of kids. Things are going well for him. But in the background is his brother wants to kill him. Which makes sense of what happens in, verse, in chapter 32, which Matt read to us. It's this slow motion approach of the brothers, one who wants to kill the other, coming to meet each other. And if you flick your Bible to chapter 32, so you can see the big picture first, you can see that in most of the front end of chapter 32, it's this Jacob preparing to meet his brother Esau who wants to kill him. And then in the tail end of chapter 32 is Jacob wrestling with God. And then in chapter 33, Jacob actually meets Esau. So you get the picture, there's the preparation for the meeting, and then the actual meeting, and in between is this little slot which doesn't really need to be there in the narrative. It's, an, it's not part of the story about Jacob and Esau. But it is the point of the story of Jacob and Esau. It's what you do when you know you're about to die. You cry out, regardless of what you deserve. Let's look at it. So chapter 32, uh, Jacob essentially, he's got lots of cash. In those days, cash was in the form of camels and goats and donkeys and so on. Uh, And so he sends bundles of bribery to kind of butter up his brother as he's heading towards him. Uh, They're coming together and you heard, you know, leave a gap between them. So, oh, another present for Esau. Oh, another present for Esau from Jacob. Jacob's cunning, right? He's a good businessman. He's buttering up his brother in the hope that he won't die. He hears that there are 400 men with him in verse 6 of chapter 32. And notice his mental state, verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people with him into two groups. Well, if Esau kills this lot, I'll still have half my livelihood left. And as the chapter continues, it it whittles down who's with Jacob until he's left alone. Jacob's gifts have gone on ahead of him, verse 21. And that night, I'm reading in verse 22, Jacob got up, took his two wives, two maidservants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. It's a river. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. A man, alone. And next, we have Jacob wrestling. A man. Now, it starts with a lack of clarity about who this guy is. Let's look at it. This is when Jacob wrestles God. Verse 24, a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Who wins the fight is my question. 
On one hand, it's pretty obvious that Jacob wins. It says, he overcame. On the other hand, Jacob loses the fight because for the rest of his life, he walks with a limp. In fact, in the only reference to Jacob in Hebrews chapter 11, that great uh, litany, that list of people from the Old Testament who had faith, Abraham gets like seven paragraphs, Isaac gets a bit, Jacob gets one line. Jacob said, when he was old, he blessed his sons as he lent on his staff. Why does it say that he lent on his staff? Because for the rest of his life, after he wrestled with God, Jacob walked with a limp. Jacob is wounded when he comes to meet God. On one sense, Jacob wins the wrestle. But I reckon you can read this two ways. One is, uh, imagine the two guys wrestling. It's been all night. They're exhausted as the sun comes up. And Jacob has his forearm on the man's throat. Right? I won't let you go unless you bless me. There's that kind of dominance. But the other way you could read it is that Jacob's grabbing onto the guy's leg like an upset toddler. Don't go. Don't go. Please don't go unless you bless me. So you can read it either of those ways. Jacob is under threat of death. And he knows who he's wrestling. He knows who he's wrestling. But before he can ask the man his name, he gets asked the same question. Now, on one hand, it's an innocuous question, verse 27. The man asked Jacob, what is your name? I've been wrestling with you all night and we've paused. Hi, who are you? No, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? Because in a sense, your name is who you are. And especially for Jacob, when he has to admit to God who he really is, what does he say? I am the deceiver. I am the one who grasps at the heel. Having wrestled with God and got nothing to show for it, as he faces impending death from the brother that he's wronged, Jacob's admission of who he is is an admission of what he's done. Jacob meets God and realises how far short he's fallen as a person who's been blessed by God in all sorts of ways. When Jacob comes face to face with God, he's wounded and he's made to force to face the realisation of who he really is. This is what happens when people come face to face with God. When people meet Jesus as they read his word, you don't meet him face to face because he's in heaven with God, but as you meet Jesus, as you read his word, it's confronting. And one of the disturbing things about getting to know Jesus is that you get to know yourself as you look in a mirror at a man who is like you, human, and gets tired and frustrated, but is perfect. And his perfection shows our imperfection. When Jacob sees God, when he wrestles with God, he's forced to confront who he is, and he pleads with God to bless him to not give him what he deserves, but to give him something else. What's your name? Jacob, he answered. And look what he gets in return. He gets a new name. He meets God face to face and he gets a new identity. Not just a deed pole, change of name, but he's a different man. He's no longer the deceiver 
But because you've struggled with God, you're going to be called struggles with God. How do you feel about that? This is the man who's going to be the head of the Jewish nation. He is Israel. This is what Israel means, struggles with God. And I think you can think about it in two ways. One of them is rugby, struggles with God like a scrum, pushing against God. And as you look through the history of the Old Testament and how Israel treat their God, there's a sense that they fight against him. I'm your king, says God. We want a king, says Israel. Worship me this way, says God. Oh, no, I think we'll do it this way. Israel struggle against God, just like Jacob had struggled against God. But there's a sense in which, as well, they struggle like this, side by side, yoked together, pursuing a common goal. See, Jacob struggles against God, and he also, for the rest of his life, struggles to be the person that God has called him to be with his promises. He struggles to take hold of that which has been promised to him. This is what it is to be Israel. They struggle with God. And so Jacob called the place face to face with God. When places get renamed, when people get renamed, it's because something significant has happened there. Jacob gets a new name and a new identity. He's no longer shaped by how he was born or what he did or what his parents did. He's shaped by the renaming he's had from God. And friends, this is the same for anyone who comes face to face with God. If you meet the Lord Jesus face to face in his word, if you call on his name, you receive a new name. We don't change your name on your birth certificate but you're born into a new family. Look around. It's a pretty weird family, admittedly. But this is us. Your Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world are your new identity because each person is a child of God and a younger brother and sister of the Lord Jesus himself. Jacob is a picture for us of what is true in Jesus. Just like so much of the Old Testament, it's a shadow of what is to come. So we've seen Jacob's backstory, his name. We've seen him struggle with God and get a new name, a new identity. And where does he go from there? Well, verse 31 paints a very little, because it's only one verse, but beautiful picture of Jacob's future. Have a look at Genesis chapter 32, verse 31. The sun rose above Israel as he passed the face of God and he was limping because of his hip. For Jacob, it's simple. Literally and metaphorically, it's a new day. The author makes a point of saying the sun came up, not just because it was daybreak before and now the sun is up, but it's a new start for Jacob. It's what you say, don't worry, tomorrow's a fresh day. For Jacob, it's a new, fresh start, and the sun beats down on him, and he has God's favour. And the second half of the story bears this out. Over the page, when he meets his brother, he's expecting to die, but in fact he gets what he doesn't deserve. Just flick over the page. Verse 8 of chapter 33, Esau says, mate, what's with all the gifts? My translation. What do you mean by all these droves I met? To find favour in your eyes. 
Jacob's trying to earn Esau's favour. And the same phrase about Jacob seeing God face to face, he uses about Esau there in verse 10 and 11. If I found favour in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you've received me favourably. See, he knows what it is to be forgiven. He knows what it is to not have his sin counted against him. And he recognises that in the relationships that he's in, he's transformed because he's met God face to face. And so it is with anyone who's met the Lord Jesus. You're changed. Jesus says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men to the disciples. God's project for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to transform you day by day so that you are more and more like the Lord Jesus in your character. This is your future, limping into a new day as you struggle with God. Let me talk to you a moment about struggling. We use the word struggle in a bunch of different ways. I think sometimes it means I find something difficult. I'm really struggling with this maths problem. I'm really struggling with how a good God can send people he's created to hell. It's an intellectual struggle and that is real. There are also physical struggles. I'm struggling to get out of bed because I'm sick. And there's also a middle ground where it's partly physical and partly part of who you are. I'm struggling to live as a Christian in a way that honours Jesus. I drink too much, I'm out of control, I'm my anger, I, I fail to forgive people. I'm struggling to live as a Christian. That is, I'm trying to live as I'm called to, but I'm not. All three of those are struggling, right? And I think the great thing about Jacob is that struggling is okay. In fact, it's your future if you're a person who knows Jesus. Because this is what you were and this is what you will be. That's why it's a good time to do this in the middle of our 1 Corinthians series, right? Because this is what you were. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified and you've been called to be holy. It's okay to struggle. Now, some people think that when you struggle as a Christian, it means you should pull back from Christian living, pull back from coming to church because you don't have it together. That's wrong. We struggle together. We struggle alongside each other. We spur each other on. We come together to say, I'm finding this hard and I need you to help me by your example, by your words, by your pointing me to Jesus. That's why if you're wondering whether or not you should come to church or small group, just always come. Because you're here to serve other people in our struggle to follow Jesus together. If you're having doubts about who Jesus is, that's fine. That's normal and good. Doubts are like going to the gym for your faith. Because you examine whether Jesus can be trusted and you realise, oh, actually he can. The doubt that doesn't examine, the doubt that pulls back is dangerous. But the doubt that engages with who Jesus is, is fruitful and leads to growth. We are strugglers. It's almost like it's an election year and everyone identifies as an Aussie battler. But we are the people who struggle with God to walk in step with the Spirit. It's the way that Paul describes it in the New Testament, he's got a thorn in his flesh, something wrong with him. We don't know whether it's blindness or some kind of weird disability. He says, I ask God to take it away from me. But God said, no, 
My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. See, just like Jacob's limp into a new day, people who know Jesus, the Jesus who suffered and trusted God in the midst of that suffering and was raised to life, Christians know that God's power is made clear as we live struggling lives together. This is why it's kind of embarrassing but really important that we're honest with each other about how it's going following Jesus. Not that you have to open up about everything to everyone. That's weird as well. Welcome to church. But we're in a community, we're in a community where we struggle to follow Jesus. And you might be in a place where things are going well for you now. Praise God. You have a chance to be a blessing to others as you point them to Jesus. You might be in a place where you're finding it really hard to follow Jesus. And I say, you're in the right place. And you are a gift to the people around you because you recognise that God's grace is sufficient for you. This is what's good about Jacob. He's a ratbag. He's got family baggage. He's got not much to offer except his own striving to grasp at what only God can give him. But he comes face to face with God and he limps into a new day with God beside him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you know us, that you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know our histories, and yet you still love us. We thank you that your love has been demonstrated in the death of the Lord Jesus for us, in raising him to life, that we might be certain about what is ahead for us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who is with us. And we pray that you would help us to look to the Lord Jesus who trusted you in every way and yet was without sin, that we might not lose hope. Help us, Lord, to know how to spur each other on towards this life of love that you've called us to live, where we struggle this side of heaven to be the people you call us to be. We thank you for one another, the chance to be real, the chance to spur each other on, and we ask that you would help us until the day we see you face to face to continue to struggle to keep in step with your spirit. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.